And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. My name is Harmony. And today we are talking about the first half of Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. We are reading until the end of chapter 33, which is page 259 in our books. This is a really popular young adult fantasy book. It was really freaking fantastic. I think that this is the first YA book that we've read for the show that I've really, really enjoyed. Not the first YA, not the first YA that I've enjoyed, period. I like plenty of YA novels, but this has been the first one that's really like been totally just like up my alley, my kind of thing. And this is not your first time reading it, isn't it? You, you Harmony is familiar with this lovely work. Yes, uh, this is my second time reading it. So I read it um, originally through the audiobook which won awards for being a fantastic audiobook. And it was great, but it was also a little confusing because the story switches narrators frequently. So now I'm getting a chance to read it through a a paper copy and the reading experience jives a lot more for me. I already knew I liked the story and that's why I like pushed through, but it was also just one of those, I think with audiobooks, normally I need something a little bit less complex in order to like fully retain and this, it's just lovely. It's a lovely reading experience. What is this book, this first half, about Maggie? So this first half follows three main characters. One is a young woman named Zaley who comes from a small village who was supposed to have magic powers, but magic was forcefully and violently eradicated from this world about a, a decade, maybe a decade and a half before this story starts. One day through a series of events, she discovers that magic might not be entirely dead. So she goes on a mission to restore magic to the world. And along with that is Amari, who is a princess and escapes from the castle when her best friend Binti is executed for being one of the diviners who could have had magic when it's discovered sort of by the king that magic is re-entering the world. And then the third perspective is Anon, who is the prince, Amari's brother. And he is, A, desperately hiding the fact that he has magical abilities, and B, hunting down these two girls and Zaley's brother as they are kind of on this mission to restore magic to the world. So the point where we've stopped at this novel is right when they've found all three artifacts that are needed to restore magic to the world. And that's pretty much all I know because I haven't read this before and I stopped specifically where we were supposed to stop. So I have no spoilers. Harmony has a little bit more context for what happens next. Yeah, so this is a fantastic fantasy novel, and it's gotten a lot of comparison when I first heard about it back in like 2016, 2015 to Harry Potter. I don't really see that comparison, but I ha- I did see and have compared it very often to 
the popular fantasy show Avatar The Last Airbender. It's a wonderful story about four teenagers who, as Maggie pointed out, are trying to restore magic to the world or in Anand's case, trying to end it. And we ended this this first half right after this really brutal, gruesome, horrifying battle that's essentially like, what are, what are they called in Roman times? Oh, like the gladiators? Gladiators. It's essentially like a gladiator fight on a big, massive scale that, to my layman's knowledge, seems like it leaves even more bloodshed. One of the the context pieces, I didn't do much context for this book because we're talking a lot about various aspects and genres surrounding this book whilst this is recorded. So I feel like listeners should already have some some context. But one of the things, the main themes that I want to explore through this book is the idea of fantasy as a tool for pushing social justice and also as a guide for living. Because when this book came out, one of the reasons that I gravitated towards it was because I was hearing how important it was for Black populations essentially to see themselves in a work of fantasy that is massively popular. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which was 2018. That was when the book was first published. Oh, I have no concept of time. No worries. I think that thinking about representation and fantasy is really important too, because there's so few prominent Black authors in fantasy. I think of, you know, Octavia Butler, who we've read many times on the channel. I think of N.K. Jemisin, who I've read many books from, even though we haven't talked about her on the channel. And I don't want to say that's it, because obviously it's not it. But like, those are the two really, really, really big names, I think, for a long time in fantasy publishing that are Black people of color. And I think that even, you know, in the last decade, we've seen that start to shift a little bit. But this is a really, to a certain extent, traditional fantasy world, I would say, in that it can be compared to things like Avatar. And it incorporates a lot of tropes that you would, I think, typically find in some, like, average fantasy and it really elevates it, A, because the writing's great, B, because the characters are fantastic, but C, because it draws on other cultures' mythology to build up this fantasy world. So it's not just some white kids in a magic school <laughs> in the middle of England. There's really rich, diverse mythology that feeds into what goes into this world building. That's, I think, part of what makes it all just so great and so magical and just emphasizes the fact that it's really, really important to have diverse publishing where people can see themselves in books. Because representation, as we've talked about ad nauseum, is important for individuals. But it's also important for people who aren't of that culture to be exposed to new ideas as well. Yes. It builds empathy. It makes you a better person. It's part of the reason why reading builds empathy to begin with is that you get exposed to new ideas. But if we continue to whitewash publishing, then reading can't do its work as effectively. Yeah. No, I I agree entirely. And one of the reasons why I think this book works so well, too, is because it is categorized as a YA novel. And I don't think that most children are going to necessarily read this, but I think that it, it, it gives more accessibility, right? So kids who have higher level reading will go on to this book. Teenagers are going to grasp onto it. And it's also really accessible for grownups, in a way that I think we see with fantasy novels like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or 
the Harry Potter series, probably not Lord of the Rings, because that's not geared towards kids. But I think that that opens up the accessibility for it in a way that books by Octavia Butler and Kay Jeminson sometimes don't. I also think it's important, too, because Octavia Butler just in 2020 got her name onto the bestseller list. She's unfortunately passed away now. And that's where we are at. Even though she's won multiple awards, she was not a big household name by any means. And I don't know that Tony Adeyemi, I don't think she's necessarily a household name at this point, but I think Children of Blood and Bone is definitely on its way to becoming a household recognized book in the way that like Hunger Games is at the very least. That's a really good point. My perception on this is definitely skewed because I am personally so plugged into the book community. And this book did come out to a lot of hype and was really popular. But that was, I think, very much amongst people who were like are already big readers, if that makes sense. Although I think that this book did come out pretty close to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. People were aware of it for sure. But you're right that that's a really good point is that authors of color, especially Black authors of color, don't often enjoy the same level of household name and notoriety that their white counterparts often do. Even if you never read The Hunger Games, you know who Suzanne Collins is. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, generally speaking, are culturally aware of Kindred, but probably wouldn't recognize the fact that Octavia E. Butler is the woman who wrote that book in the same way. I agree. I most certainly agree. So where do we want to start off with our analysis of this book? Do we want to do character analysis? Do you mind if we start with the world, actually? Because I think that that's useful. That like social justice basis is useful for talking about character motivations and actions. Okay. All right. Go ahead. I believe in you. (laughs) You're the one who had the context. So the fantasy world building in this is really, really rich for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it's one of those fantasy novels that builds its world based off of things that people might be familiar with from our current real world situation and uses that as like a little bit of a starting point and then expands from there. So for example, Yoruba is the language of magic in this book, which is of course a real Nigerian language that is spoken. So you're able to kind of start from a place of a little bit of familiarity familiarity. I'm sorry, I've been in meetings for so long today that my tongue is not working anymore. You're okay. And then you expand out to a world where magic exists, but people need to fight for it and people are feared for it. And difference is feared and stigmatized because of that, especially if you have white hair, which is the marker that you are a person who carries magic or whose ancestors at this point in the novel carried magic. And there's a lot of ostracization as well as oppression that comes to the people in this book who are descended from those who carry magic. And that's built up from you right at the beginning. There's higher taxes, taxes are collected more often, there's higher levels of violence, and there's also a risk of you essentially being sold into slavery if you can't pay those taxes, which is a much higher risk for these diviner children than it is for anyone else. So right away, this fantasy world forces you to think about equity, forces you to think about social justice, and forces you to think about power and what it means to have power. Because, and this is a place where I think that a lot of fantasy in general interrogates power, but this book does it especially well, is the fact that we come into this world at a moment where the character, the main character we're following 
feels extremely powerless. Her power has been literally stripped from her. And the narrative that's being told around all of this is that prior to this, the Magi were too powerful and they were misusing that power. And therefore the sort of normal people, quote unquote, had to rise up and figure out how to strip it from them. And now they're oppressed because we can't risk the power ever coming back and the power imbalance is being shifted again. So I think that that's a trope that a lot of fantasy thinks about, but this book interrogates it in a whole new way and a whole new light. And I think that that's probably where I'd want to start. I want to get your thoughts on that and what you thought about this aspect of this novel, because that was one of the most compelling parts for me to think about. You mean the power aspect, the the history and world building of how power works in the society? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of throwbacks to divine right, the divine right of kings. And I think one of the interesting part of this, because the group, the diviners or the mage, did used to be in power. That is a part of the world. And we'll learn more about that as the series progresses. But they were awarded that from the gods. And they're also, we see a weird thing with power happen with the mage too, where the mage generally are darker skinned and they generally have curly hair, which I think in the US, we attribute a lot to black people because of magic. They have curly hair because of magic, which I always think is fun. (laughs) But they are also, they're meant to look like the image of gods. They're supposed to be modeled after Sky Mother, who is like the ultimate god in their system. And they were awarded their powers by gods. And the reason that they don't have their powers anymore, a part of the lore, it's said, is because the gods took it away from them. So the non-mage, I think we see throughout the system, tend to be less dark. I don't think their hair is talked about as much. These lighter, less African features seem to be prized more. And I think that's really interesting because Adeyemi has said that she was inspired in part by a lot of things, but one of them was the Black Lives Matter movement. And the fact that people reacted so poorly to the Hunger Games, having casted Prue as a Black character... So this is something she's cognizant of, and she's intentionally playing with race here. And I think that it's important that these people who are so disempowered are Blacker-seeming, but also came from a place of divine power. Yeah, yeah, I totally get you. And I think that the divine power thing, coming from a very Western lens, is something that's difficult for me to contend with at the very least because divine power is often equated I think for us as the reason and excuse for a lot of atrocities that happened like manifest destiny for example is one of the key ones to me thinking about the ways in which white people used their god-given right to the land of this country to genocide Native Americans and to steal land from Mexico. So to me, it's interesting to kind of see this in a different context. And I don't really know a ton of what to make of this whole divine right. Because on the one hand, it is a divine right. And we find out in this part of the story that the lore, so to speak, the narrative that the gods took the magic away is not actually what ended up happening. The connection was purposefully severed to to weaken the magi. So like this God-given right was stolen from them, not taken from them ultimately. Yeah, I think it's meant to be complicated because yes, it was stolen from them, but I don't think the Magi are supposed to be completely blameless. I think that the atrocities that are happening to them right now are 
extreme and wrong. And the book is pretty out forth about that. But I think that the book really challenges you to look at the way that you think about power and to delve into it in a complex manner. And I think that there are various ways that it does that. But this is one of them, this idea of divine right and the mage's place in society or what they used to be. I think also when we're talking about, because you and I are coming from a Western perspective, right? We've talked about that on the podcast before. There's not really a way that we can completely break out of that perspective because it's so ingrained in the entirety of our culture. But Adeyemi is also coming from a Western perspective. And she does an interesting thing with this book where she blends her two cultures together. This novel, at the very least, doesn't feature any white characters. And I think that that's really important for us. The fact that it's a fantasy world, it's not our real world, but it's still dealing with things like colorism in the absence of whiteness, right? So I think it's important for us as white readers to push back against our preconceived notions about what these things mean. But also, I think that there are important parallels that she's tying in there. And I think the divine right is a part of that. But I also think, too, because this book draws so heavily on Nigerian lore in particular, I think that she's playing, too, with this idea that many African cultures have about receiving power directly from divine gods. So I think that it's blended so much that it becomes this new thing. And I think that she's cognizant of that. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not put off by the fact that I don't know what to make of it, because I think you're right, and that it's absolutely intentional. And I think that the lack of white people in this book also emphasizes, I think it says something about humanity in general, that power struggles are almost innately who we are. Harmony and I have talked about the fact that hierarchy feels so built into our societies and our psyches sometimes that it's really difficult to imagine a world in which it doesn't exist at all. And that really struck me here because we see the colorism and we also see major issues with classism. And we also see, you know, we're a feminist podcast. There's there's also a lot of issues with patriarchy in this book and they come about differently because it's not necessarily directly influenced in this world by white culture as far as we know at this point but those things all still exist and need to be contended with as part of the power structures and narratives in this fantasy world yeah do you want to talk about some of those things you want to dive into colorism or toxic masculinity or classism yeah Part of what makes this book complex to talk about is that these things, as in real life, are all intertwined together, right? So we see Amari, who's a princess, who in some ways is extraordinarily privileged, always has enough to eat, has a safe roof over her head, but has a really complex relationship with her mother because she is darker skinned and is therefore considered to be less beautiful. And her mother is very tough on her. Also because she doesn't she doesn't do great at fitting in with the mold of what a princess should B, from the fact that her best friend is her lady's maid, Binti, all the way to the fact that she likes food. (laughs) And the novel opens with, for her perspective, with her mother telling her that she's eaten enough dessert and that it's not ladylike. So we see this aspect coming along and we see Amari in a place where she's extraordinarily stifled and a lot of her individuality is trying to be stripped from her in the name of being like a perfect princess. And then that's contrasted 
with Sally, who is living in poverty, who doesn't know where her next meal is always going to come from, who is dealing with violence in a really direct manner, because not only is she one of these diviners, but she's also a young woman in in a low class. So she's pushing to learn how to fight. The book opens with her graduating from fighting class with her metal staff and being sent out into the world. So she's able in some ways to break out of a lot of these gender norms. She helps her father, her father, she and her brother help relatively equally, it seems, with her father, who is ill. It seems like with dementia, but it's never something along those lines because he has blackouts and he can't always remember. Some of that household work is shared. They both work on the boat. She's the better barterer when they go to market. She's the one who's able to get them a significant amount of money for sailfish so that they might actually be able to have some security financially. So this book, I think, is a real examination of privilege in that sense, because both of these characters have certain different freedoms depending on their station. And just because Amari has certain privileges because she's of a higher class doesn't mean she has all the same freedoms. And I think that Adeyemi does a really great job of talking about that and breaking it down, you know, about safety between these two characters, largely because Amari becomes more and more aware throughout this journey of the privileges that she has had. And Zaley is able to call her out. Yeah, call her out, but also eventually looks at Amari differently when she learns about some of Amari's struggles and the fact that she has had a very regimented life in which she has been put down for various other things, you know, in like an emotionally damaging way versus some of the physical fear that Zaley has experienced because of, of class issues. So they're able to eventually kind of come to a place of understanding for, from each other that's handled really, really admirably, I think. And also really, really, really realistically, right? Like Amari (laughs) kind of tries to make herself small for parts of the beginning of the journey because she recognizes the fact that she's a fish out of water. And Zaley does call her out a lot and rightfully so, but there does hit a point where it's like they have to start communicating and stop the calling out and stop the butting because it's, it's getting in the way of what they're actually trying to do. Yeah, I think that was very important, too, because I think today when we talk about privilege, one of the biggest struggles is trying to get people to understand that privilege isn't just a set hierarchy. It's not a set pyramid scheme, right? We don't just have all these people on the bottom. And we do in some ways, but because of intersectionality, there are ways in which no matter what, we're going to have different struggles and it's going to be messy even though we might have one prescription of societal identity, right? I grew up a lot poorer than a lot of my friends. And a lot of my friends grew up with other struggles that I didn't have, whether that be race or sexuality or anything else. There's always going to be some sort of middle ground, I think, when we look at this. And I think that this book does a really good job of highlighting that because it's important for people who are called privileged to recognize that that doesn't mean that they are without struggle. And it's also important for people who are feeling angry at others. It's, it's important for people who are doing the calling out too, because we don't ever know somebody's full journey and full life struggle. And we can't just assume that their lives are completely without struggle because of their station or their perceived station. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think the fact that this book deals primarily with one race of people actually ends up helping to emphasize that point. And I think it honestly, if if this sort of conversation happened in any book, whether the characters be white or Asian or anything, I think that all that does is help to emphasize that point is that there isn't sort of one set way that we think about hierarchy and that it's important to think with nuance about the various damage that certain identities can experience because of societal stigma and that those things are really complicated because everyone is more than one thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's important. Do we want to talk about, because you mentioned something important too, is this idea that daily throughout this first half, we, I think we start to see the seedlings of her really discovering how much privilege she has. Because I think even towards the end, because like I said before, we ended this in this grotesque battle. Yeah, battle for people's entertainment. So let's look at Amari. So on page... Oh, is it in Amari's chapter on page 238? Maybe. Okay, okay. Oh, shit. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. I got too I got too wrapped up in Binti. Uh, Amari's best friend's name was Binta. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay. I didn't correct you, so I didn't catch it. All right. So Zane is talking to Amari, and they're about to go into this gruesome battle. And he says, You don't have to do this. Terror rings so loudly in my ears, it takes a moment to process Zane's words. You don't have to do this. You don't have to die. There are only three people who know about the ritual. If we're all in the boat, he clears his throat, swallowing the fatal thought. I didn't come all this way for nothing. No matter what, one of us has to survive. All right, the words slip to the edge of my lips, desperate to escape. But daily I choke out. If anyone stays behind, it should be her. If we stood a chance in hell without her on the ship, I would be persuading my sister instead. But I stop as the water of the arena surges, splashing onto the boat. In minutes, the chamber will be covered, trapping me inside this burial chamber. If I'm going to run, it has to be now. In a moment, it will be too late. Amari, just go, Zane presses. Please, we'll fight better if we don't have to worry about you getting hurt. We. I almost find the heart to laugh. Behind us, Sally grips the railing, eyes closed and lips quick as she practices the incantation. Despite her obvious fear, she still fights. No one allows her to run away. If you're going to act like a princess, turn yourself into the guards. I'm not here to protect you. I'm here to fight. My brother is after me, I whisper to Zane. My father, too. Staying off this boat does not keep me or the secret of the scroll alive. It only buys me time. As the water splashes my feet, I step forward, joining a team at the cannons. I can do this, I lie. I can fight. So I think that's important because Amari up into this point is still questioning her decision. She's like, why did I take this scroll? Why am I not at the palace sleeping and eating and not in danger of dying? And for her, this is important because this in some like this isn't her fight. She's coming from the position of privilege. She's coming from a position of power. And I think that it's important too that even though Amari may not always complain or be completely whiny that we get to see her personal thoughts because we are seeing throughout this book her recognition her recon- her her realization of privilege and her realization of the the things that her people her father has done to people 
And we see her really grappling with, I could be safe and making the choice to right those wrongs anyway. I agree. I think there's also an extra layer with Amari's character that complicates this even more as that this is also partially a personal journey for her and that she's been trained to fight. That was part of her upbringing. But this is one of the first times where she's ever had to actually use that training outside of simulations. And those simulations were brutal. Her brother Anon viciously hurts her when she sort of refuses to to do a training aspect. So it's both this continual recognition of privilege and this continual recognition of even though she's questioning it, she continues to make she continues to make the choice to fight for justice, which is really important because that's how I think it works in the real world. You don't just say I'm anti-racist once. You have to continually make that choice every single day and every single interaction you have and reinforce the fact that you're not going to go back to your life of privilege. But then also she has this personal journey too where she's finally going to get to use some of this power that she's had inside of her that she's never really unleashed. And it's terrifying because she is in physical danger and they all could die, but she's not going to sort of just run away. She's going to use this training that she has and learn how to put it in real world applications. So I feel like this scene is really important for both of those reasons, because there's this larger existential moment. But it's also paired with this, I don't want to say smaller in the sense that it's less significant, but it's more insular to Amari and her own story, and her own personal growth that dovetails together as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Because I think that when we look at societal structures of power, what we often see is restrictions on your your life based off of how much power you have. And I don't want to say more restrictions because I don't know if that's necessarily accurate, but it's not but different. Restrictions. Yeah, different restrictions. And I think that you can see that in what we see in this book with Amari being held to higher social standards. And we can see that if you're working and are the boss of something, right, you have different expectations that you have to hold yourself to versus your employees. And I think that choosing to fight for the marginalized can be empowering on an individual level beyond just I'm helping the world. I think that it does allow you, it forces you to reckon with your society and all of the ways that you might be restricted in your current position because you're forced to think about power. And then you're forced to question what parts of power are fair and what parts aren't. And I think that anyone doing that is going to come up, like even white rich men are probably going to come up with the idea of, oh, I don't have to live my life this way. This is actually toxic. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point because as much as the battle for equity and equality is a battle for everyone and a battle for the more for people who are more oppressed than you as well. We're all humans, right? Like we all have skin in the game of what society says we all should be. And you should fight for others, but it's okay to also want change for yourself. Even if you can recognize the fact that you're more privileged than others in many ways, it's okay to still have that moment of selfishness to be like, 
part of why I want this to change is because I want people to stop talking about and thinking about me in this way and have this set of prescriptions for how I should behave societally. We all have skin in this game, you know? And I think that especially when we're talking about intersectionally, one of the ways that I really see that is with things like toxic masculinity that we know is bad for both, (laughs) for, you know, men, women, and our non-binary friends who don't subscribe to binary gender roles. It's bad for everyone. And it's okay for even, you know, cis white men to say, I don't like the fact that I can't cry in public without being called the sissy, you know? Having motivations that are altruistic are really important, but it's also okay to want change because you want change for yourself too. I think you need to have both really to be passionate about it, to be dedicated to that work because it's hard to be altruistic all the time. Humans are selfish creatures, I think. It's really hard to put others before you 100% of the time. But when you see yourself as part of these systems, as somebody who suffers under these systems too, as long as you don't center yourself in conversations where you're not supposed to be, that's useful as well because that fires your personal fight for equity. Yeah, you're not going to go to a protest about a specific thing like gay rights and then talk about your own personal oppression if you are not gay, necessarily because that's specifically for gay rights. But it's good for all of us to have sexual freedom, right? And so there are ways that that can benefit you. And that's important. And I see that a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement being talked about right now in terms of how white people should be dealing with it in terms of police relations. Because even though we are not targeted at the same rate as Black people or any person of color, to be frank. The criminal justice system is still wrong, and it's still harmful, and police brutality still exists. So these are things that we should be reforming, if nothing else, for ourselves. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's, that's the moment where you have to recognize your privilege, right? Like, this conversation isn't about us as white people by any means but it's also naive to think that police brutality only happens to certain people you know it happens at significantly higher rates especially to black men and that's a central part of the movement but even black lives matter talks really the movement itself talks really openly about the fact that they're trying to end police brutality for everyone and then additionally get equitable justice for the fact that it happens at higher rates, especially to Black men. Because the difference in this conversation is that even though police brutality does happen to white people as well, it's a lot easier to get justice for those things. And police officers are held to higher levels of accountability when those situations happen. And they are fired and they are put in jail. But even taking out the police brutality aspect, there are so many problems with our criminal justice system that we've known about for forever. And this... yeah specifically does target Black people, right? Because Black people were enslaved and it was used as a way to keep them enslaved. But it's not beneficial for anyone. Like there's just no actual benefit to our criminal justice system for anyone. (laughs) And that's important to recognize. So I think that it's important that this book does have Amari as our main character in Privilege. And I think too, Anon as a kind of fodder to show us what could be or somebody dealing with that struggle more directly. But Amari's important because she she is doing this. She's doing this for Benta. 
that's her main goal. And then she's doing this because she's now recognized all of the ways in which her family wasn't a safe space and the ways in which she can not only help, but become a more fuller version of herself by doing so. Yeah, I agree. Do you mind if we move on to Anon, actually? Because I think that he's he is a really, I think, important counterpoint to Amari's story. Because in Anon, we see somebody who is desperate to keep the status quo the way it is so that he can keep his power. But it's because he has to hide who he actually is from his father, from his family, from everyone. or be at risk of also being killed because he is also a Magi and it's complicated. (laughs) I think one of the very interesting things about Power when we're talking about Anon too, though, because you have to remember that both Amari and Anon and any person with privilege in this world, as we're introduced to it, thinks of the Magi as dangerous, either because of propaganda or either because of real historical events. And I think with Anon, it's important, too, because he's a person in a position of power who is desperately trying to keep that power. You're correct. But he also thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. And part of that is because he's now interacted with magic. And it's so much power that it scares him. Mm -hmm. And he's ashamed of that power, which I think is really complicated. Yeah, yeah. He has being inside his head makes him a really compelling character because you see him struggle in certain ways with a lot of the same things that all of the other characters are struggling with, but coming out with very different conclusions on the other side of it. And a lot of that is because of the privilege, right? He's so part of this societal machine as the crown prince that he's drank the Kool-Aid, you know, and it gets re-emphasized when he has his this taste of magic. But then there's also the feeling of needing to hide and shame and being in physical danger because of it. One of his last scenes right before we cut off is he has to kill his admiral because she's going to kill him because she discovers that he's Magi. There's a whole slew of things happening here, but with Amari and Anon, you really see two sides of the same coin, so to speak. And I do speculate at the very least that part of the reason that Amari is able to come to different conclusions is a, of course, because she's with Dalian Zane. And so it's like having a much a much more enlightened experience of what it's actually like to go without. But also, I think because she's a woman and has been treated differently by the system of privilege even than Anon has their entire lives. So she has going into this even more of a taste of what it is like to have different sets of restrictions than Anon is. So she's already more predisposed, I think, to listen to why all of the propaganda you've been fed your whole life might not actually be beneficial for you or anyone else. Yeah, and I think the fact that she has been to is important for many reasons, two of which are, A, she's a friend, Anon doesn't. We don't see any descriptions of friendship in this novel for him. And B, Binta is somebody who's living a different experience and she's forced to reckon with that. So I think like the fact that she has some sort of solidarity built in a way that Anon doesn't. And the fact that she's been exposed to more through Binta is really helpful too. And I also think that she has less responsibility, quite frankly, on her shoulders than Anon does because Anon is supposed to be the crown prince. He will be king someday. And he was the one, he was the one who had to commit the violence when they were young, right? Because a big part of this story is that Anon 
was forced by his father to hurt his sister in a really brutal way. And she chose not to hurt him. And there's Mm -hmm. a certain level of privilege that comes with that choice, not going into it, but like that allows her a less traumatic experience because she is not the one physically hurting someone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you really see toxic masculinity in their relationship and how it plays out because a lot of what leads Anon to be the way he is, is through as much as Amari is expected to be the perfect princess and can't fit that role. Anon is expected to be the the perfect prince and does fit that role because he's in bodily danger if he doesn't. So there's a lack of empathy for others. There's a lack of human connection at all. There's, a lot of pride in being the general that he is, captain of the guard. There's there's a lot at stake for him. And he's uncomfortable when his mother is worried about him because it makes him seem less manly. And he's got a lot riding on this idea that his sister, this girl essentially can escape him. He doesn't necessarily think about it in those terms all the time but that's the implication of what's happening and also very much what his father sort of lays down on him when he's sent out to fix this situation and then he does have a really complicated relationship with Amari because you get the sense that he does really care about her quite a lot and there is a lot of trauma for both of them surrounding this event but it does affect him differently day to day knowing that he was the person who chose violence and knowing the per- that he was the person who hurt his sister when I think prior to that, he sort of felt like he should be the protector of his sister. And so we see a lot of the ways in which Anon fulfilling his duties as being the crown prince, as being this very masculine man, is mentally <laughs> breaking him and then also corrupting him a little bit. Because you see also, even just halfway through the novel, in my opinion, at least, a really big difference in Anon's perspective about everything that's happening from the beginning to this halfway point. And he's becoming more set in his beliefs that the Magi are evil and wrong. And he's becoming more radicalized, more set in this ideology. And you see it, you can track it from the beginning to this midpoint. And I'm certain it's going to get even more intense as we get to the end. So it's almost really heartbreaking as a reader to see it because you can almost see what Anon could have done if he wasn't living in this really unloving, unloved environment where he was forced to fit these ideologies. And then we almost just see him go head first into it anyways. I think in last episode, we talked a lot about confirmation bias. And that is definitely the case for Anon here. He's being confronted with new facts and it's only reinstating his bias. But I think and very that's interesting in of itself because his power, which we haven't talked about at all, is essentially empathy. Yeah. He's able to build his own little dreamscape, but he's also able to live out people's memories and feelings and can sometimes hear people and he can smell people and kind of get their essence, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating because where we're at in the book right now, as Maggie mentioned, Anon is still incredibly radicalized despite having these new experiences and despite having a more complex understanding of individuals and the individuals that he's harming. He's really scared for himself in many ways. And that's part of the reason that he's so set in this radicalized way, because even though his power is empathy, 
that power scares him so much. I think because A, he's worried that he will use it to do harm to others ultimately, but then B, again, also the fact that if he's caught out, he will be killed. His closest advisor on this trip, who, I mean, admittedly, it's not like they were great friends or anything, finds out that he's Magi and immediately tries to murder him. So, so, and he knows that his father won't hesitate either. So there's just like a lot going on. But I think that that also is really interesting when we talk about breaking gender stereotypes too, because Zaley's a reaper. She's a necromancer. Mm-hmm. She has this very... I don't know that it's necessarily traditionally masculine, but it's definitely not necessarily a a form of magic that I would immediately identify societally as being super feminine either. And Anon does have something that is typically coded as being a very feminine power and trait. I will just say, because I'm not, I'm not sure about the gods and goddesses that are mentioned in this book or whether or not they're real or their what their relationship is to the real world. But I do know that there are goddesses of death. And that is actually, in many cultures, a, a big part. It, it is supposed to be feminine because partly because women are creators. So therefore, women are also the destroyers of life. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Even in Greek mythology, it's like Persephone. And Hecate. All right. Maybe, maybe, maybe I track that back. Yeah. May- maybe I track that back a little bit. But at the very least, Anand also has a form of magic that is coded to be, I think, traditionally seen as feminine. At the very least in our Western society, like empathy is a female trait. Girls are expected to be more emotionally intelligent and therefore be more empathetic. So I just think that's that that's interesting. That's very interesting. Do we want to talk a little bit, because I know you have to go soon, about Zaley and Zane? Sure. They have a much different sibling relationship and I think are much less trapped by traditional gender roles at the very least. But, you know, as we were talking about before, have much different struggles in the sense of where is my next meal coming from? We have a sick father. Somebody has to care for him all the time. But one of us has to either be training or working all the time. So they've got they've got a lot going on too. But they also have a very tight sibling relationship. It's interesting though, because Zane, as much as he's part of this major, of this foursome, we don't have a chapter from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Zane is kind of along from, for the ride a little bit. I wonder if that changes. I have the second book and I really want to read it. And I do wonder, because I would like more from Zane's perspective. But in many ways, he's kind of our straight man. Because Mm -hmm. we don't get a chapter from his perspective, but also because he's the most normal (laughs) out of all three of them. Like, he's just a boy who really likes a sport, which I read to be kind of like soccer. Uh And he's really good at it. And he's really popular and really charming. And he's cool with strong women because his mom was a reaper. And now his sister's a reaper. And she's fire all the way. But he also really takes that protector role pretty seriously. In regards to his sister and his father and eventually Amari. But I think that it's not super gendered all the time because Zaley has an equally protective sort of feeling toward him. I agree. And even in their home, like we mentioned briefly at the beginning of the episode, we don't get a ton of information about it, but they do seem to share domestic responsibilities like taking care of their father relatively equally Zane isn't the only one who goes out on the boat. Bailey goes out on the boat too. Zane is really good at recognizing what people's strengths are and then sort of helping to delegate based off that. But he's also not the leader either. He's just kind of the everyman. Not that this is a one-to-one correlation by any means, but in some ways he's the Sokka of the group, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So he's really good at helping. And Anand is Prince Zuko. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so he's really good at helping place people where their strengths will be best utilized. And you're right. I think that he's like a very, he's in, in many ways, he's like a typical boy boy, but he has a lot of respect for women. And you see that through all of his interactions. And he has a very empathetic worldview. And I think really doesn't suffer as much from gender expectations and toxic masculinity as Anon does, for example, as the other main male character in the story. Yeah, I will say, I don't think he's completely devoid of toxic masculinity. I do think in the beginning, especially we see a few instances of him interacting with Zaley, where he's like, can't you just be like a normal fucking girl? Yeah. And especially when compared to their father, because I think their father, in part maybe because of his state of being, because of his health at the moment, is really kind of like, Zaley, be your full self. You're cool. I've got it. But I do think that in comparison to Anon, and in comparison to like real world boys I know here in the United States, He's pretty, he's pretty non-toxic. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that I agree with you too, that part of that grows throughout the novel, because there's also moments where it's when they go to sell the fish, right? Zane thinks that he should be the person who does it and eventually backs off because Zaley is the better barterer. And Zane ends up coming along anyways. And her father pulls Zaley aside and is like, don't fuck this up. She's like, of course I won't. And then he's sort of like, don't let Zane fuck this up. And she's like, of course I won't. So there is, I think, a little bit of coddling of his his masculine ego at the beginning. But when push comes to shove, that shit starts to fade away for him. Yeah. And I think too, to be fair, I think part of his protectiveness that comes across as toxic when talking about Zaley isn't just because she's a girl, which we do see is a danger in this world. Zaley, we haven't talked about this at all, but Zaley is almost sexually assaulted, or I guess sexually assaulted, you could say, even though nothing really happens because it's still a violation of her multiple times throughout this book, even in this first half. I think that part of his feelings about it is because she is a diviner. And so not only is she a young woman, she's she literally has the lowest amount of power in the societal structure. It is in danger of being enslaved. Yeah, absolutely. So like there's there's places where this overprotection feels warranted as the reader because it's not because he doesn't trust Zaley by any means. Well. It's because well <laughs> I mean it is, but 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 it comes more from the fact that he recognizes the fact that the world is more dangerous for her. Yeah for various reasons, than it is for him. Do we want to talk a little bit about Zaley? Yeah, let's end the episode with her. I think if we're talking about gender roles, Zaley breaks all of them just because she is the rogue character. And she's like, I am the hot-headed person who's going to go into battle and destroy everything. And if we're comparing this to Avatar still, she is Korra. (laughs) He is tough. I feel like Toph's less hot-headed, though. (laughs) Yeah, no, she is pretty hot-headed. No, you're totally right. And she's also, I mean, magically the most powerful character we see here. She's the chosen one, really. If we're going to talk about that trope, she's got all of that going on. And she's, I don't know, she's my favorite character in all of this, frankly. She just has, like, this really rock-solid sense of who she is and what she believes in, and she's going to fight for that. And as much as I think it's important to see 
the journeys that the other characters go on to sort of reach the same point. It's also really refreshing to have a female character who just knows who she is, knows what she's about, and is ready to fight to get it. And that's true even before she even finds out that magic can come back, right? One of the opening scenes in the book, she's fighting with a guard who is heavily threatening her because she believes so strongly that what he's doing is wrong and unjust. And on the one hand, that is a really hot-headed moment that probably wasn't thought out super well when it comes to long-term consequences for that. She really could have been enslaved because of that. She she could have been se- really severely sexually assaulted. She like, caused a lot of trouble for the grown-ups in her life. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, she just has such a clear sense of right and wrong and is willing to go out and fight for that. And that's really nice to see somebody who doesn't have to be convinced that what they're doing needs to be done and just knowing that it has to happen. And it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily also comes from the sense that she's one of the most depressed characters either, because it's just like who she is. I I think that if she was in a different situation, she would still be one of those people who's just aware of what's going on and is fighting for justice because it's just so part of her character. I I think that's kind of a hard claim to say, right? Because of course, one's circumstances informs who one is, no matter what, that's your personal context. And that shapes you to be who you are. But she is the rock and the compass of this group, morally and emotionally. And she's not afraid to get down and dirty to do what needs to be done. Yeah. And I think that the way that she goes about being the moral compass is a, as we've talked about before, very traditionally masculine way and and what we see for different characters and different tropes. I do think that because she attributes, she attributes so much of her moral feelings towards the way that her mom raised her and to toward the event that took her mother away from her. So I do think that maybe if she was raised in a palace, she would have ended up more like Amari. But I don't think that her being oppressed is necessarily what defined her moral sensibilities. I think it's I think it was honestly her her circumstances in which she was raised and and, and partly who she is as a person. However, I do think that there's still important character growth for her because and I'm sure we'll see this even more in the second half of the novel. But even throughout this first half, we see I guess I I really relate to this trope, right? I feel like in a lot of ways, I am that hot-headed version in my my world and my society, right? I feel like I'm one of those people who takes action before they think about it. And I don't think that that's always the best way to do things. And I think that that, what I like about this book is that Zaley experiences real consequences for her actions because that isn't always the most compassionate or correct way to go about doing things. And I think that we start to see her question her actions and grow up more throughout this book. Even though her moral sensibilities stay the same, I think that we see her develop more empathy and view the world as less black and white. And Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I agree. I agree. When I said that she didn't have the same kind of journey, I didn't mean that she didn't have any moments of character growth. I more meant it from like the equity justice standpoint of knowing what's right. But you're absolutely correct that she grows emotionally as a person and she becomes a little bit more measured, a little bit more level headed and definitely, I think, more empathetic as the story moves on. Yeah, which are big strengths, because I think, too, part of the problems with this trope, as we see it depicted in other media, is that this character, regardless of gender, is usually 
painted as the best way to go about being a hero. And this book is great because we do have multiple perspectives. So we get to see different ways of doing things. And it's not always the best way. And if you're not that person, you shouldn't feel expected to be that person. But it is still good to stand up for what you believe in. And there are ways that you can do that that fit you better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think most importantly, even as she's changing and becoming a little bit less hot-headed, it also doesn't mean that she lets go of some of the rage that's been driving her. She's just able to refocus it in a way that ends up being more productive for her needs and ends rather than having as much of a hair trigger as she used to. And we're still seeing that develop, I would say. It's not like she's <laughs> we're halfway through the novel and she's totally changed. No. <laughs> but like, you can see the inklings of it start to move forward. Yeah, in the same way that I think we're seeing it start with Amari. Yeah, everyone grows as a character throughout this book. So that's fantastic. I agree. I think it's especially important, too, when we're talking about rage, especially because this is a book that only contains people of color, right? And is primarily mm-hmm. about Black people. Because that conversation is talked a lot when we're talking about Black oppression, it's talked about a lot. And I think I brought up this book before in the podcast, but there's a book called Eloquent Rage written by Dr. Brittany Cooper, who apparently is a professor at Rutgers. Yay! And she is talking about how Black women specifically need to utilize their rage. And we've talked about this on the podcast too, because I think that Maggie and I both you know, who aren't Black, so we have a different experience with it, have uncomfortable relationships when it comes to rage and allowing that to inform our moral values. But I think that we get to see, we get to see both kind of the dangers from from Zaley and the positive aspects of that. Because I do think that rage is useful, especially when you're in an oppressed situation, and it can be a useful motivator but there are definitely restrictions that you need to place on it to make sure that you're not becoming the oppressor. Absolutely. And I think that, like you were saying, that conversation is especially important for us to recognize as white women, because while anger for us is viewed as being unbecoming, I think a lot of the time. Hysterical. Yeah, it's definitely not stigmatized and demonized to the same sense as it is for Black women. Or just Black people in general. In general, yeah, exactly. Where it's like, if you if you have the audacity to be angry about anything, suddenly you're outside of your societal place or whatever bullshit white supremacists are trying to shove down our throat this time. Well, it makes you scared. That's the thing. It makes it makes white people scared when black people are angry because they are oppressed and because we're aware of how much we've contributed to that oppression. Yeah, absolutely. So Zaley never being punished for her anger in any way is, I think, really important and no one tries to talk her out of it and lots of other people are angry too and it's viewed more as a tool to be honed I think than anything else yeah which I think is important specifically in the context of this novel but also for people who are looking for parallels especially for you know black children who might be reading this novel yeah yeah all right what is there anything else you want to address in this this last these last few moments I think for me those were the biggest themes that really stuck out. I'm really interested to see in the second half of the novel how everything ends up playing out with getting the power back and what those dynamics are because I want to talk more about next session some of that divine right aspect as well as some of the history of power in this fantasy world because you implied at the very least that we're probably going to learn more about it in the second half and I'm interested to see how that 
informs everything that we've been talking about. But for right now, I feel like we've hit the the, the major things that I wanted to discuss. Me too. I'm excited for next episode. And I hope that maybe we end up reading the sequel next season. We'll see how Maggie feels. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this book is fantastic. If, if, if some miracle you guys have made it this far in the podcast without reading the book, read this book. It's so good. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. I'm happy. All right. I'm happy with you. All right. Yes. Oh, is this a feminist book? So far, at the very least, of course, we can't oh. you know, talk fully. So far, I think that we've had a little bit of struggle with Amari and Zaley, which I think is starting at the second half of this half of the book, starting to resolve itself. But that could initially be deemed as a little bit unfeminist. But I also think that the way the book tells it is ultimately feminist, especially because we're starting to unpack that and I think part of that too comes from the fact that Zaley and uh Zane we, we can see some inklings of maybe a mutual attraction Zaley and her brother oh no I'm sorry Amari and Zane we can see some inklings <laughs> of a mutual attraction we'll have to tell Kevin he needs to cut that out <coughs> Kevin <laughs> cut out what I just said thank you editor's note that will most certainly not be cut Woo! Yeah, but Amari and Zane, we can see some inklings of like a mutual attraction, which I think kind of sets up a sort of rivalry between Zaley and Amari. Ultimately, I think it's still feminist. I mean, right from the get go, we have this badass Black Panther style school going on where all of the girls in the village are learning how to be warrior woman. So right there, feminist stamp. Boom. We've got lots of strong yeah. female characters. <laughs> Yeah, to me, I mean, this is a book that is directly and very purposefully interrogating power structures and what it means to have power and what it looks like when those structures are upended in multiple different ways. So I think for me, that's enough for it to be inherently feminist, especially when we see on top of that some of the critique about gender roles and gender norms. Although I am excited to see some more reconciliation between Zaley and Amari, because I feel like female solidarity has been lacking a little bit so far, but it's mostly been with the point of interrogating power and interrogating privilege. So I don't think it's like inherently anti-feminist that it doesn't exist so much yet either. So I'm saying I'm saying strong, yes, but excited to see more. some more female friendships develop. Yay! Okay, homework. Homework. Oh my god. <laughs> still kind of the same as last week in the sense that I still feel like I'm losing my mind a little bit and need to kind of focus on supporting my own mental health as rather uh, as well as those around me who are quite close to me. But I do think that also on top of that, I'm coming out of the stupor of, holy shit, the past couple of weeks has been wild. And am feeling like it's really time to start harassing all of my representatives again, especially to push for more progressives in Biden's world, I would say, because there's been a couple of candidates that I've really been excited about that he's put forth. But for the most part, it's just boring white moderates. So <laughs> Are you expecting I'm, anything different? <laughs> no, no. But that but like, I feel like I'm at the point where I'm like mental, I mentally have energy again to really put into pushing my representatives, especially because I live in Washington State, which 
where I live is very, very blue, but in other parts of the state isn't. So we do have some Republican House representatives that I feel like I should really be, you know, harassing. Okay, my homework. Whoa, wait, wait, what is it called? The death, the death, the death penalty. Thank you. All right. I was thinking about my homework while you talked about yours. So this week, the ACLU, I don't know if people have been paying attention or not, has been really pushing for the death penalty to be overturned, but also for individual people who are up on death row and who are being executed this week or soon. And so I think because we talked a lot about Black Lives Matter specifically within this book and because I think prison reform is one of the substantial ways that we can directly make Black lives more safe feeling, (laughs) I think that's something that I'm going to focus on and have been doing a little bit is focusing a lot on how we specifically get rid of capital punishment, but also just on prison reform in general. So that might mean donating because I have a little bit of extra money this week to bail funds. That's always a good idea. It might mean looking into organizations that help prisoners. There are a lot of library organizations specifically that help prisoners. And that's important because when you're in jail, you don't really have anything to entertain yourself with. And reading we know is good for empathy building, right? It gives you a way to escape your situation. And just from people I've spoken to who have spent time in jail, it seems really important to have that ability to learn and better yourself while you're dealing with that situation. So that is my homework this week. And also, when this airs, we will be on the week of the inauguration. So Everyone just try and take it easy and, you know, maybe go out and get some canned vegetables and rice and beans and frozen veggies. But don't don't go crazy. Don't make it so that there aren't enough for everyone. Yeah, stay safe for sure, especially if you live near your state's capital. We, we know that there are armed, violent protests being planned. So be aware of your surroundings and, and where you are and who you're surrounded by. We will be thinking of you. And also, if you're interested in anything that Harmony just talked about, she's been posting a lot of resources about all of this on our Instagram. So feel free to check out some of those highlights on our Instagram stories for more information about abolishing the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not cool. What are you reading, Harmony? What am I reading? Okay, so I just started Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Have you not read that before? I haven't. I've never read that. By Ransom Briggs? I, I wanted to. Oh, that was one of my favorites in high school. I love that book, but I haven't read it in a long time. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about it. What else am I reading? Oh, I'm reading Take a Hint, Danny Brown. What about you? I'm in the middle of the Binti trilogy. And I'm also in the middle of Children of Blood and Bone, because what we're talking about next week is the second half of this novel. So yes, stay tuned. We're excited. We are excited. I'm, I'm extra excited now that I liked the first half. So much. <laughs> it's been a while since we read something Maggie jived so much with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, sometimes that happens when you do critical book reviewing it, not everything is going to be your cup of tea, but it's still worth talking about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Is that it? That's it. We will see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. 
you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.